Section 16 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Morning 2, Part 2. They resumed to their work of construction more patient and ingenious even than that of the bees, for of a few mediocre scraps of memory they fashioned a marvelous image of themselves and their friendship. After having idealized each other during the week, they met again on the Sunday, and, in spite of the discrepancy between the truth and their illusion, they got used to not noticing it and to twisting things to fit in with their desires. They were proud of being friends. The very contrast of their natures brought them together. Jean Christophe knew nothing so beautiful as Otto. His fine hands, his lovely hair, his fresh complexion, his shy speech, the politeness of his manners, and his scrupulous care of his appearance delighted him. Otto was subjugated by Jean Christophe's brimming strength and independence. Accustomed by age-old inheritance to religious respect for all authority, he took a fearful joy in the company of a comrade in whose nature was so little reverence for the established order of things. He had a little voluptuous thrill of terror whenever he heard him decry every reputation in the town and even mimic the Grand Duke himself. Jean Christophe knew the fascination that he exercised over his friend, and used to exaggerate his aggressive temper. Like some old revolutionary, he hewed away at social conventions and the laws of the state. Otto would listen, scandalized and delighted. He used timidly to try and join in, but he was always careful to look round to see if anyone could hear. Jean Christophe never failed, when they walked together, to leap the fences of a field whenever he saw a board forbidding it, or he would pick fruit over the walls of private grounds. Otto was in terror, lest they should be discovered, but such feelings had for him an exquisite savor, and in the evening, when he had returned, he would think himself a hero. He admired Jean Christophe fearfully. His instinct of obedience found a satisfying quality in a friendship in which he had only to acquiesce in the will of his friend. Jean Christophe never put him to the trouble of coming to a decision. He decided everything, decreed the doings of the day, decreed even the ordering of life, making plans, which admitted of no discussion, for Otto's future, just as he did for his own family. Otto fell in with them, though he was a little put aback by hearing Jean Christophe dispose of his fortune for the building later on of a theatre of his own contriving. But, intimidated by his friend's imperious tones, he did not protest, being convinced also by his friend's conviction that the money amassed by Kommerzienrat Askerdiner could be put to no nobler use. Jean Christophe never for a moment had any idea that he might be violating Otto's will. He was instinctively a despot, and never imagined that his friend's wishes might be different from his own. 
had Otto expressed a desire different from his own, he would not have hesitated to sacrifice his own personal preference. He would have sacrificed even more for him. He was consumed by the desire to run some risk for him. He wished passionately that there might appear some opportunity of putting his friendship to the test. When they were out walking, he used to hope that they might meet some danger, so that he might fling himself forward to face it. He would have loved to die for Otto. Meanwhile, he watched over him with a restless solicitude, gave him his hand in awkward places as though he were a girl. He was afraid that he might be tired, afraid that he might be hot, afraid that he might be cold. When they sat down under a tree, he took off his coat to put it about his friend's shoulders. When they walked, he carried his cloak. He would have carried Otto himself. He used to devour him with his eyes like a lover, and to tell the truth, he was in love. He did not know it, not knowing yet what love was. But sometimes when they were together, he was overtaken by a strange unease, the same that had choked him on that first day of their friendship in the pine woods, and the blood would rush to his face and set his cheeks aflame. He was afraid. By an instinctive unanimity the two boys used furtively to separate and run away from each other, and one would lag behind on the road. They would pretend to be busy looking for blackberries in the hedges, and they did not know what it was that so perturbed them. But it was in their letters especially that their feelings flew high. They were not then in any danger of being contradicted by facts, and nothing could check their illusions or intimidate them. They wrote to each other two or three times a week in a passionately lyric style. They hardly ever spoke of real happenings or common things. They raised great problems in an apocalyptic manner, which passed imperceptibly from enthusiasm to despair. They called each other, My blessing, my hope, my beloved, myself. They made a fearful hash of the word soul. They painted in tragic colors the sadness of their lot, and were desolate at having brought into the existence of their friend the sorrows of their existence. I am sorry, my love, wrote Jean Christophe, for the pain which I bring you. I cannot bear that you should suffer. It must not be. I will not have it. He underlined the words with a stroke of the pen that dug into the paper. If you suffer, where shall I find strength to live? I have no happiness but in you. Oh, be happy! I will gladly take all the burden of sorrow upon myself. Think of me. Love me. I have such great need of being loved. From your love there comes to me a warmth which gives me life. If you knew how I shiver... There is winter and a biting wind in my heart. I embrace your soul. My thought kiss is yours, replied Otto. I take your face in my hands, was Jean Christophe's answer. And what I have not done and will not do with my lips, I do with all my being. I kiss you as I love you, prudence. Otto pretended to doubt him. Do you love me as much as I love you? Oh, God, wrote Jean Christophe, not as much, but ten, a hundred, a thousand times more. What, do you not feel it? What would you have me do to stir your heart? 
what lovely friendship is ours sighed otto was there ever its like in history it is sweet and fresh as a dream if only it does not pass away if you were to cease to love me how stupid you are my beloved replied jean christophe forgive me but your weakling fear enrages me how can you ask whether i shall cease to love you for me to live is to love you death is powerless against my love you yourself could do nothing if you wished to destroy it even if you betrayed me even if you rent my heart i should die with a blessing upon you for the love with which you fill me once for all then do not be uneasy and vex me no more with these cowardly doubts but a week later it was he who wrote it is three days now since i heard a word fall from your lips i tremble would you forget me my blood freezes at the thought yes doubtless the other day only i saw your coldness towards me you love me no longer you are thinking of leaving me listen if you forget me if you ever betray me i will kill you like a dog you do me wrong my dear heart groaned otto you draw tears from me i do not deserve this but you can do as you will you have such rights over me that if you were to break my soul there would always be a spark left to live and love you always heavenly powers cried jean christophe i have made my friend weep heap insults on me beat me trample me under foot i am a wretch i do not deserve your love they had special ways of writing the address on their letters of placing the stamp upside down askew at bottom in a corner of the envelope to distinguish their letters from those which they wrote to persons who did not matter these childish secrets had the charm of the sweet mysteries of love one day as he was returning from a lesson jean christophe saw otto in the street with a boy of his own age they were laughing and talking familiarly jean christophe went pale and followed them with his eyes until they had disappeared round the corner of the street they had not seen him he went home it was as though a cloud had passed over the sun all was dark when they met on the following sunday jean christophe said nothing at first but after they had been walking for half an hour he said in a choking voice i saw you on wednesday in the conegasse ah said otto and he blushed jean christophe went on you were not alone no said otto i was with someone jean christophe swallowed down his spittle and asked in a voice which he strove to make careless who was it my cousin franz ah said jean christophe and after a moment you have never said anything about him to me he lives at rheinbach do you see him often he comes here sometimes and you do you go and stay with him sometimes ah said jean christophe again otto who was not sorry to turn the conversation pointed out a bird who was pecking at a tree they talked of other things ten minutes later jean christophe broke out again are you friends with him with whom asked otto 
He knew perfectly who was meant. With your cousin? Yes. Why? Oh, nothing. Otto did not like his cousin much, for he used to bother him with bad jokes, but a strange malign instinct made him add a few moments later, He is very nice. Who? asked Jean Christophe. He knew quite well who was meant. Franz. Otto waited for Jean Christophe to say something, but he seemed not to have heard. He was cutting a switch from a hazel tree. Otto went on. He is amusing. He has all sorts of stories. Jean Christophe whistled carelessly. Otto renewed the attack. And he is so clever and distinguished. Jean Christophe shrugged his shoulders as though to say, What interest can this person have for me? And as Otto, piqued, began to go on, he brutally cut him short and pointed out a spot to which to run. They did not touch on the subject again the whole afternoon, but they were frigid, affecting an exaggerated politeness which was unusual for them, especially for Jean Christophe. The words stuck in his throat. At last he could contain himself no longer, and in the middle of the road he turned to Otto, who was lagging five yards behind. He took him fiercely by the hands and let loose upon him. Listen, Otto, I will not, I will not let you be so friendly with Franz, because, because you are my friend, and I will not let you love anyone more than me. I will not. You see, you are everything to me. You cannot, you must not. If I lost you, there would be nothing left but death. I do not know what I should do. I should kill myself. I should kill you. No, forgive me. Tears fell from his eyes. Otto, moved and frightened by the sincerity of such grief, growling out threats, made haste to swear that he did not and never would love anybody so much as Jean Christophe that Franz was nothing to him, and that he would not see him again if Jean-Christophe wished it. Jean-Christophe drank in his words, and his heart took new life. He laughed and breathed heavily. He thanked Otto effusively. He was ashamed of having made such a scene, but he was relieved of a great weight. They stood face to face and looked at each other, not moving and holding hands. They were very happy and very much embarrassed. They became silent. Then they began to talk again and found their old gaiety. They felt more at one than ever. But it was not the last scene of the kind. Now that Otto felt his power over Jean Christophe, he was tempted to abuse it. He knew his sore spot and was irresistibly tempted to place his finger on it. Not that he had any pleasure in Jean Christophe's anger. On the contrary, it made him unhappy but he felt his power by making Jean Christophe suffer. He was not bad. He had the soul of a girl. In spite of his promises, he continued to appear arm in arm with Franz or some other comrade. They made a great noise between them, and he used to laugh in an affected way. When Jean Christophe reproached him with it, he used to titter and pretend not to take him seriously, until, seeing Jean Christophe's eyes change and his lips tremble with anger, he would change his tone, and fearfully promise not to do it again, and the next day he would do it. Jean Christophe would write him furious letters, in which he called him, Scoundrel! Let me never hear of you again! I do not know you! 
May the devil take you and all dogs of your kidney. But a tearful word from Otto, or, as he ever did, the sending of a flower as a token of his eternal constancy, was enough for Jean Christophe to be plunged in remorse and to write, My angel, I am mad. Forget my idiocy. You are the best of men. Your little finger alone is worth more than all stupid Jean Christophe. You have the treasures of an ingenuous and delicate tenderness. I kiss your flower with tears in my eyes. It is there on my heart. I thrust it into my skin with blows of my fist. I would that it could make me bleed, so that I might the more feel your exquisite goodness and my own infamous folly. But they began to weary of each other. It is false to pretend that little quarrels feed friendship. Jean Christophe was sore against Otto for the injustice that Otto made him be guilty of. He tried to argue with himself. He laid the blame upon his own despotic temper. His loyal and eager nature, brought for the first time to the test of love, gave itself utterly, and demanded a gift as utter without the reservation of one particle of the heart. He admitted no sharing in friendship. Being ready to sacrifice all for his friend, he thought it right and even necessary that his friend should wholly sacrifice himself and everything for him. But he was beginning to feel that the world was not built on the model of his own inflexible character, and that he was asking things which others could not give. Then he tried to submit. He blamed himself. He regarded himself as an egoist, who had no right to encroach upon the liberty of his friend and to monopolize his affection. He did sincerely endeavor to leave him free, whatever it might cost himself. In a spirit of humiliation, he did set himself to pledge Otto not to neglect Franz. He tried to persuade himself that he was glad to see him finding pleasure in society other than his own. But when Otto, who was not deceived, maliciously obeyed him, he could not help lowering at him, and then he broke out again. If necessary, he would have forgiven Otto for preferring other friends to himself, but what he could not stomach was the lie. Otto was neither liar nor hypocrite, but it was as difficult for him to tell the truth as for a stutterer to pronounce words. What he said was never altogether true nor altogether false. Either from timidity or from uncertainty of his own feelings, he rarely spoke definitely. His answers were equivocal, and above all, upon every occasion he made mystery and was secret in a way that set Jean Christophe beside himself. When he was caught tripping, or was caught in what, according to the conventions of their friendship, was a fault, instead of admitting it, he would go on denying it and telling absurd stories. One day, Jean Christophe, exasperated, struck him. He thought it must be the end of their friendship and that Otto would never forgive him. But after sulking for a few hours, Otto came back, as though nothing had happened. He had no resentment for Jean Christophe's violence. Perhaps even it was not unpleasing to him and had a certain charm for him. And yet, he resented Jean Christophe letting himself be tricked, gulping down all his mendacities. He despised him a little, and thought himself superior. Jean Christophe, for his part, resented Otto's receiving blows without revolting. 
They no longer saw each other with the eyes of those first days. Their failings showed up in full light. Otto found Jean Christophe's independence less charming. Jean Christophe was a tiresome companion when they went walking. He had no sort of concern for correctness. He used to dress as he liked, take off his coat, open his waistcoat, walk with open collar, roll up his shirt sleeves, put his hat on the end of his stick, and fling out his chest in the air. He used to swing his arms as he walked, whistle, and sing at the top of his voice. He used to be red in the face, sweaty and dusty. He looked like a peasant returning from a fair. The aristocratic Otto used to be mortified at being seen in his company. When he saw a carriage coming, he used to contrive to lag some ten paces behind, and to look as though he were walking alone. Jean-Christophe was no less embarrassing company when he began to talk at an inn or in a railway carriage when they were returning home. He used to talk loudly and say anything that came into his head and treat Otto with a disgusting familiarity. He used to express opinions quite recklessly concerning people known to everybody, or even about the appearance of people sitting only a few yards away from him, or he would enter into intimate details concerning his health and domestic affairs. It was useless for Otto to roll his eyes and to make signals of alarm. Jean-Christophe seemed not to notice them, and no more controlled himself than if he had been alone. Otto would see smiles on the faces of his neighbors, and would gladly have sunk into the ground. He thought Jean-Christophe coarse, and could not understand how he could ever have found delight in him. What was most serious was that Jean-Christophe was just as reckless and indifferent concerning all the hedges, fences, enclosures, walls, prohibitions of entry, threats of fines, verbote of all sorts, and everything that sought to confine his liberty and protect the sacred rights of property against it. Otto lived in fear from moment to moment, and all his protests were useless. Jean-Christophe grew worse out of bravado. One day, when Jean-Christophe, with Otto at his heels, was walking perfectly at home across a private wood, in spite of, or because of, the walls fortified with broken bottles which they had had to clear, they found themselves suddenly face to face with a gamekeeper, who let fire a volley of oaths at them, and after keeping them for some time under a threat of legal proceedings, packed them off in the most ignominious fashion. Otto did not shine under this ordeal. He thought that he was already in jail, and wept, stupidly protesting that he had gone in by accident, and that he had followed John Christophe without knowing whither he was going. When he saw that he was safe, instead of being glad, he bitterly reproached Jean Christophe. He complained that Jean Christophe had brought him into trouble. Jean Christophe quelled him with a look and called him Lily Liver. There was a quick passage of words. Otto would have left Jean Christophe if he had known how to find the way home. He was forced to follow him, but they affected to pretend that they were not together. The storm was brewing. In their anger they had not seen it coming. The baking countryside resounded with the cries of insects. Suddenly all was still. They only grew aware of the silence after a few minutes. Their ears buzzed. They raised their eyes. The sky was black. Huge, heavy, livid clouds overcast it. They came up from every side like a cavalry charge. 
they seemed all to be hastening towards an invisible point, drawn by a gap in the sky. Otto, in terror, dare not tell his fears, and Jean-Christophe took a malignant pleasure in pretending not to notice anything, but without saying a word they drew nearer together. They were alone in the wide country. Silence. Not a wind stirred. Hardly a fevered tremor that made the little leaves of the trees shiver now and then. Suddenly a whirling wind raised the dust, twisted the trees, and lashed them furiously, and the silence came again, more terrible than before. Otto, in a trembling voice, spoke at last. "'It is a storm. We must go home,' Jean-Christophe said. "'Let us go home.' But it was too late. A blinding savage light flashed, the heavens roared, the vault of clouds rumbled. In a moment they were wrapped about by the hurricane, maddened by the lightning, deafened by the thunder, drenched from head to foot. They were in deserted country, half an hour from the nearest house. In the lashing rain, in the dim light, came the great red flashes of the storm. They tried to run, but, their wet clothes clinging, they could hardly walk. Their shoes slipped on their feet. The water trickled down their bodies. It was difficult to breathe. Otto's teeth were chattering, and he was mad with rage. He said biting things to Jean-Christophe. He wanted to stop. He declared that it was dangerous to walk. He threatened to sit down on the road, to sleep on the soil in the middle of the ploughed fields. Jean-Christophe made no reply. He went on walking, blinded by the wind, the rain, and the lightning deafened by the noise, a little uneasy, but unwilling to admit it. And suddenly it was all over. The storm had passed, as it had come, but they were both in a pitiful condition. In truth, Jean-Christophe was, as usual, so disheveled that a little more disorder made hardly any difference to him. But Otto, so neat, so careful of his appearance, cut a sorry figure, it was as though he had just taken a bath in his clothes, and Jean-Christophe, turning and seeing him, could not help roaring with laughter. Otto was so exhausted that he could not even be angry. Jean-Christophe took pity and talked gaily to him. Otto replied with a look of fury. Jean-Christophe made him stop at a farm. They dried themselves before a great fire and drank hot wine. Jean-Christophe thought the adventure funny and tried to laugh at it, but that was not at all to Otto's taste, and he was morose and silent for the rest of their walk. They came back sulking and did not shake hands when they parted. As a result of this prank, they did not see each other for more than a week. They were severe in their judgment of each other, but after inflicting punishment on themselves by depriving themselves of one of their Sunday walks, they got so bored that their rancor died away. Jean-Christophe made the first advances, as usual. Otto condescended to meet them, and they made peace. In spite of their disagreement, it was impossible for them to do without each other. They had many faults. They were both egoists, but their egoism was naive. It knew not the self-seeking of maturity which makes it so repulsive. It knew not itself even. It was almost lovable, and did not prevent them from sincerely loving each other. Young Otto used to weep on his pillow as he told himself stories of romantic devotion of which he was the hero. 
He used to invent pathetic adventures, in which he was strong, valiant, intrepid, and protected Jean Christophe, whom he used to imagine that he adored. Jean Christophe never saw or heard anything beautiful or strange without thinking, if only Otto were here. He carried the image of his friend into his whole life, and that image used to be transfigured and become so gentle that, in spite of all that he knew about Otto, it used to intoxicate him. Certain words of Otto's, which he used to remember long after they were spoken and to embellish by the way, used to make him tremble with emotion. They imitated each other. Otto aped Jean Christophe's manners, gestures, and writing. Jean Christophe was sometimes irritated by the shadow which repeated every word that he said and dished up his thoughts as though they were its own. But he did not see that he himself was imitating Otto and copying his ways of dressing, walking, and pronouncing certain words. They were under a fascination. They were infused one in the other. Their hearts were overflowing with tenderness. They trickled over with it on every side like a fountain. Each imagined that his friend was the cause of it. They did not know that it was the waking of their adolescence. Jean Christophe, who never distrusted anyone, used to leave his papers lying about. But an instinctive modesty made him keep together the drafts of the letters which he scrawled to Otto and the replies. But he did not lock them up. He just placed them between the leaves of one of his music books, where he felt certain that no one would look for them. He reckoned without his brother's malice. He had seen them for some time laughing and whispering and looking at him. They were declaiming to each other fragments of speech, which threw them into wild laughter. Jean Christophe could not catch the words, and following his usual tactics with them, he feigned utter indifference to everything they might do or say. A few words roused his attention. He thought he recognized them. Soon he was left without doubt that they had read his letters. But when he challenged Ernest and Rodolphe, who were calling each other, my dear soul, with pretended earnestness, he could get nothing from them. The little wretches pretended not to understand, and said that they had the right to call each other whatever they liked. Jean Christophe, who had found all the letters in their places, did not insist farther. Shortly afterwards he caught Ernest in the act of thieving. The little beast was rummaging in the drawer of the chest in which Louisa kept her money. Jean Christophe shook him and took advantage of the opportunity to tell him everything that he had stored up against him. He enumerated, in terms of scant courtesy, the misdeeds of Ernest, and it was not a short catalogue. Ernest took the lecture in bad part. He replied impudently that Jean Christophe had nothing to reproach him with, and he hinted at unmentionable things in his brother's friendship with Otto. Jean Christophe did not understand, but when he grasped that Otto was being dragged into the quarrel, he demanded an explanation of Ernest. The boy tittered. Then, when he saw Jean Christophe white with anger, he refused to say any more. Jean Christophe saw that he would obtain nothing in that way. He sat down, shrugged his shoulders, and affected a profound contempt for Ernest. Ernest, piqued by this, was impudent again. He set himself to hurt his brother, and set forth a litany of things each more cruel and more vile than the last. 
Jean-Christophe kept a tight hand on himself. When at last he did understand, he saw red. He leaped from his chair. Ernest had no time to cry out. Jean-Christophe had hurled himself on him and rolled with him into the middle of the room and beat his head against the tiles. On the frightful cries of the victim, Louisa, Melchior, everybody came running. They rescued Ernest in a parlous state. Jean-Christophe would not loose his prey. They had to beat and beat him. They called him a savage beast, and he looked it. His eyes were bursting from his head. He was grinding his teeth, and his only thought was to hurl himself again on Ernest. When they asked him what had happened, his fury increased, and he cried out that he would kill him. Ernest also refused to tell. Jean-Christophe could not eat nor sleep. He was shaking with fever and wept in his bed. It was not only for Otto that he was suffering. A revolution was taking place in him. Ernest had no idea of the hurt that he had been able to do his brother. Jean-Christophe was at heart of a puritanical intolerance which could not admit the dark ways of life, and was discovering them one by one with horror. At fifteen, with his free life and strong instincts, he remained strangely simple. His natural purity and ceaseless toil had protected him. His brother's words had opened up abyss on abyss before him. Never would he have conceived such infamies, and now that the idea of it had come to him, all his joy in loving and being loved was spoiled. Not only his friendship with Otto, but friendship itself was poisoned. It was much worse when certain sarcastic allusions made him think, perhaps wrongly, that he was the object of the unwholesome curiosity of the town, and especially when some time afterwards Melchior made a remark about his walks with Otto. Probably there was no malice in Melchior, but Jean Christophe, on the watch, read hidden meanings into every word, and almost he thought himself guilty. At the same time, Otto was passing through a similar crisis. They tried still to see each other in secret, but it was impossible for them to regain the carelessness of their old relation. Their frankness was spoiled. The two boys who loved each other with a tenderness so fearful that they had never dared exchange a fraternal kiss, and had imagined that there could be no greater happiness than in seeing each other, and in being friends, and sharing each other's dreams, now felt that they were stained and spotted by the suspicion of evil minds. They came to see evil, even in the most innocent acts. A look, a hand-clasp. They blushed. They had evil thoughts. Their relation became intolerable. Without saying anything, they saw each other less often. They tried writing to each other, but they set a watch upon their expressions. Their letters became cold and insipid. They grew disheartened. Jean-Christophe excused himself on the ground of his work, Otto on the ground of being too busy, and their correspondence ceased. Soon afterwards, Otto left for the university, and the friendship which had lightened a few months of their lives, died down and out. And also a new love, of which this had been only the forerunner, took possession of Jean-Christophe's heart, and made every other light seem pale by its side. End of section 16